to Tales of a Children's Doctor, a podcast outlining a life spent working with some incredible children and introducing you to them and their families. In this season, we will also meet some amazing colleagues and hear their stories. Here is your host, Chris. Please come and join him. So welcome to the long-delayed episode three of season two. I'm calling this episode Stimulating the Brain. And the reason for that is not that we're going to be stimulating it verbally or intellectually, although I hope we will, but actually we're going to look at stimulation of the brain as a way of treating epilepsy. To illustrate that, I want to tell you about a young man called Charlie, who I got to know almost immediately after I started working in Sheffield. Charlie was 11 when I first met him, and he had a very long history which went back really to the newborn period. He'd had fits as a newborn baby and had been treated for these. And they'd gone into remission and he'd been able to come off his treatment. It was noted that his head was smaller than would be expected for his age, and that's something that we call microcephaly. For the first year to two years actually though, his development appeared to continue completely normally, and he made normal motor milestones. He started to speak, and he started to do all the normal things he did expect a two-year-old to do. However, about the age of two and a half, it became clear that he wasn't really making as much progress with his speech and language as you'd perhaps expect. And it was clear that he wasn't really understanding things quite as much as he'd expect. So he was seen, and he was assessed, and it became clear that he did show signs of early developmental impairment. Charlie remained reasonably well over the next couple of years. But age five, he started to have fits again, and he was started on treatment for these, which seemed to lead to some improvement in his fits, although he still had occasional breakthrough seizures. Over the next few years, really the main problems for him seemed to centre around his learning and his behaviour and he had really significant issues with his behaviour that led to intervention from what's called the Child and Adolescent Mental Health Services. His fits, though, didn't seem to be too much of an issue until around the age of nine when they started to deteriorate again. At that time, of course, there wasn't a paediatric neurologist in Sheffield, and he was assessed by colleagues in Oxford. But when I started in Sheffield in 1991, he was referred to me, At that point, his fits were relatively infrequent, but they were quite troublesome. He had major convulsions, what are called tonic-clonic seizures, and he also had episodes where he would suddenly drop to the ground and injure himself sometimes, as well as brief blank spells. He'd had a couple of admissions to hospital because of these, and they were certainly beginning to look like they were going to be a problem. When I saw Charlie, we made some adjustments to his anti-epileptic drug therapy, and initially this seemed to be successful. But over a year or so his fits deteriorated again. And really the story of the next two or three years was very, very difficult to control epilepsy. Charlie would have spells where his fits seemed to be reasonably well controlled, and then he'd have spells where he was having really quite frequent seizures. Unfortunately, over time, the spells where his fits were well controlled gradually became shorter and shorter, until about three years after I met him, he was having very frequent seizures indeed. In 1994, Charlie had prolonged periods of time in hospital, and, in fact, when we calculated that, 
it turned out that he'd spent about 195 days out of the 365 in hospital. Many of those were days spent in the intensive care unit, and many of them were really traumatic for him and his family. We had investigated Charlie quite thoroughly. What was clear was that he had changes in his brain due to a lack of oxygen to the brain, probably occurring in the late part of pregnancy. This predominantly affected parts of his brain that didn't control movement, but was certainly responsible for his seizures. This explained why his early milestones had been relatively normal, because those early developmental milestones are motor or movement milestones. But subsequently, as he started to learn, it became clear that he did have difficulties. By the end of 1994, really, we were at the end of our tether. Charlie had tried pretty much every anti-epileptic drug that we had available to us at that time. Charlie's mum was an amazing lady. She never gave up on him. She always read and looked into everything that might possibly be helpful for him. And very often the ideas and suggestions that she made were ones that we would implement. In early 1995, she came to tell me about something she'd seen on the television. This was a device called the vagus nerve stimulator. It had mainly been used in adults, but the first child had just been tried with it in the United States. Interestingly, around the same time I'd been to an epilepsy meeting and had heard some of the presentations about this device. Charlie's mum asked me if whether I'd be willing to consider trying this for him. I wasn't sure whether it was available in the United Kingdom, but I agreed that, given everything else had been unsuccessful, it was certainly worth trying it for him. There were a number of hurdles to overcome at this point. Firstly, we didn't know if we could get hold of the device in the UK. We knew that it had been used in the UK in adults, and indeed in 1994 the first UK child had been implanted with a device in London. We certainly knew that the NHS wouldn't pay for it, and we knew that we couldn't guarantee the outcome for Charlie. Now at this point it's probably worth just diverging a little bit to talk about vagus nerve stimulation and to talk about what we knew about it then and perhaps to give you a little bit of an update about what we know about it now. So the story of vagus nerve stimulation really goes back to the beginnings of the EEG in the late 1930s. People were recognising that the brain produced electrical activity, and so were stimulating different parts of the brain in animals to try to find out what happened to the EEG. One of the things that was noted was that when you stimulated the vagus nerve, there was a change in the electrical activity in the brain. And a few years later, someone realised that this change was rather the opposite of what happened when a person had a seizure. That led to some experiments in other animals to look at, could you interrupt seizures by stimulating the vagus nerve? And what was found was that, yes, indeed you could. What was even more interesting, though, was that people set up automated systems to stimulate the vagus nerve and then to record without having to have someone doing it manually every time. What became apparent was that the amount of reduction in seizure activity was greater than could be expected simply by the device switching on when a seizure was occurring. This led to some further studies to see whether the actual effect of vagus nerve stimulation extended beyond the immediate impact of this stimulation at the time of the seizure. 
and that's exactly what appeared to be the case. Of course, the importance now was, could this be used to treat humans? Now, you'll be aware that before any treatment can be used in a human being, it has to be subject to some sort of control and testing. Any new treatment in medicine needs to be shown to be both effective and safe. When you're talking about anti-epileptic drugs, or indeed if you're talking about any kind of medication, the main test of effectiveness is what are called double-blind placebo-controlled trials. These are trials where neither the patient nor the doctor administering the treatment knows whether the individual is being given an active treatment or a placebo treatment. That's felt to be the best way of determining whether a treatment is effective. Trials are constructed so that people with a particular problem, for example epilepsy, are very carefully assessed. They're asked to consent, given all the information that's necessary, and then are randomised, usually by a computer, either to receive an active treatment or to receive a placebo. And then they're followed up over a period of time, and the outcome is noted. At the end of the study, the code is broken, and one looks to see whether the treatment group had a better result than the placebo group. If there was a significantly better outcome for the treatment group, then generally it's considered that this is an effective treatment. The other important part of all of these trials is careful assessment of safety. Now you can't actually get to the point of actually administering an experimental medication to humans without there having been quite a lot of safety data obtained already. But the double-blind trials, where we look at these drugs, are important in terms of identifying whether or not a treatment is safe. The importance of all this is that if you're talking about an operation, or if you're talking about implanting a device, it's very difficult to imagine a placebo. You could implant the device and not switch it on, and that could act as a placebo. The problem was that when you considered the vagus nerve stimulator, this was a device a bit like a heart pacemaker. It generated a small current, there were wires connected to a nerve in the neck known as the vagus nerve, and the nerve is stimulated. The difficult thing about this in terms of a placebo-controlled trial is that a person with the device in place can feel the stimulation. So it would be impossible for a person who had the device in not to know whether they were receiving stimulation or not. The way the company that made this device got round that was to use some information that had come from earlier experiments done in animals. What they were able to do was to identify strengths or intensities of treatment which were likely to be effective, and strengths of treatment or stimulation that were likely to be ineffective. Both of them could be felt, but one was likely to be effective and the other was likely to be ineffective. Essentially then, everyone had an operation and the device was implanted. One half of the people receiving the treatment was stimulated at a level felt to be too low to be effective, whereas the other half of the people were stimulated at a level that was felt likely to be effective. At the end of three months and at the end of nine months, the data were obtained. These showed very clear evidence that the group that was stimulated at the higher level in other words, the level likely to be effective, got a much better outcome in terms of seizure control than the group had been stimulated at the low level. Now, interestingly, the low level did show some response. Whether that was a placebo response or whether that was a response that indicated that the device was effective even at lower levels was obviously difficult to tell. 
What was important, though, was that at the end of nine months, the group that had had the low treatment were then escalated up to the higher level of treatment. And interestingly, the same proportion of people in that group go on to benefit as had benefited from the high stimulation the first time round. This really seemed to suggest that this was an effective treatment. And that's what led to the device being licensed both in the United States and subsequently in Europe. And that's what allowed us to say, yes, this might be effective. One of the difficulties we faced, though, was that every single person in the trials was an adult. There were no children. This meant that, although there was no reason to think that children would be less likely to benefit, there was no evidence that they would actually have a benefit from this device. And this meant that we couldn't really use that adult data to convince governments to fund it. Nevertheless, I was fairly convinced from the data that this was likely to be useful in children, because there was nothing physiologically that led me to think that it would be unlikely to be beneficial. For that reason, I agreed with Charlie's mum that we should do everything in our power to get him a device. Because we couldn't depend on funding from the health service, Charlie's mum started to fundraise. It was an expensive device and she had a lot of fundraising to do. Nevertheless, she was a very powerful lady and incredibly driven. Her main priority was to ensure that her son could have access to what she believed was likely to be a potentially beneficial intervention. And as a result, really over a matter of only very few months, she managed to generate enough income for us to be able to implant the device. As it turned out, in fact, though, the company that made the device agreed that they would provide it to us for free. So we didn't need to use that money. And I'll come back to what happened to the money later on. So how does the vagus nerve stimulator work? In reality, nobody really knows. We do have some evidence from a variety of studies of possible mechanisms. We know that if you stimulate one vagus nerve, and everybody has two, one on each side of the brainstem, you get metabolic changes in both sides of the brain. And those changes occur in parts of the brain that are important in propagation of seizures. We also know that there are probably network changes that occur as a result of vagus nerve stimulation. And those network changes are probably important in changing how the brain with epilepsy behaves. At the end of the day, though, there is no absolute certainty as to how VNS works. But there is really good evidence to show us that it does indeed work. turn to Charlie. The next problem was, yes, we had some evidence that the device might work. Yes, we had the device that we could implant, but we needed a neurosurgeon who'd be willing to undertake the operation. Now, obviously, nobody in Sheffield, and indeed hardly anybody in the country, had done this before. It wasn't a difficult operation from a neurosurgical perspective. Obviously, it would be difficult for someone like me, who's not a surgeon. But for a neurosurgeon, it was relatively straightforward. Fortunately, the neurosurgeon who worked with children in Sheffield at the time was a very open-minded person. He went to a couple of meetings. He spoke to some of his international colleagues who had implanted the device. And then he agreed that he would be happy to go ahead with the operation. The day came for the procedure. Charlie's fits had continued to be 
horrendously difficult to manage and he'd had multiple admissions to hospital. As I said, right up to the time of the operation, more than half of the year had been spent in hospital. Charlie went in for the anaesthetic. The device was implanted and he came out. In those days, and indeed nowadays, what would happen in theatre was that the neurosurgeon would switch the device on at a very low setting in order to let the nerve become acclimatised to the current. When he came out from the operation, Charlie could feel it. He could feel it every time it switched on, and it was programmed to come on for 30 seconds every five minutes. He recovered extremely well from the operation and went home the following morning. 24 hours later, Charlie phoned me. In fact, Charlie's mom phoned me, but she put Charlie on the phone to me. Charlie was 15. As we'd said, he had an intellectual disability. But he was a boy who was able to express what he thought and what he felt, and he was quite verbal. He definitely understood what was going on. Charlie said to me, Dr. Chris, Dr. Chris, it's not working anymore. Actually, as he spoke to me, I could hear the device switch on. Because the device is connected to the vagus nerve, and the vagus nerve sends a branch to the voice box, one of the side effects of the vagus nerve stimulator is that, while it's stimulating, the voice temporarily goes a little bit hoarse. And I could hear that. I was able to reassure Charlie that it hadn't stopped working, and it was indeed working well. We knew from all the studies that what we gradually needed to do over the next few weeks was to escalate the stimulation. In other words, turn up the strength of the current to get to what most people used at that time, which was around 1.5 milliamps. And we did that. Steadily, over the next few weeks and months, Charlie's seizures became less and less frequent. Until, about three months after the device had reached its full setting, his fit stopped altogether. We hadn't made any changes to his epilepsy medication. All we had done was to implant this device. This was remarkable. I certainly hadn't expected that level of response. Yes, I knew from the studies that about 40% of people would at least halve their seizures, but very, very few people had become seizure-free. Yet this seemed to be what had happened for Charlie. I think probably the best indicator of the benefit from this device for Charlie was the fact that the year before the device was implanted, he had well over six months in hospital while for the next four years he did not have a single day in hospital due to his seizures. It was incredible. Towards the end of that four years, Charlie suddenly started to have fits again. This came as a bit of a shock to us because he'd been so well. Now the device itself contains a battery, and what we were told by the company was that this battery would last between five and seven years on the kind of stimulation we were giving. When Charlie started to deteriorate, we brought him urgently into hospital, and we checked his device. In those days, there was no warning that the battery was going to reach the end of service, so it was a shock to find that the battery was flat. We planned and immediately re-implanted the device with an up-to-date version, and within about two to three weeks, Charlie became seizure-free again. Fascinatingly, the only time that Charlie then really had seizures over the next Oh, a decade occurred whenever the device was coming towards the end of its service. And for him, it was life-changing. For his mum, too, it was life-changing. The changes in her life were twofold. The first was obviously the fact that she no longer spent most of her time in hospital, 
and that she no longer had to watch her son fitting and injuring himself and living in fear that he might die. The second and perhaps most lasting change that occurred in her life was the fact that she realised that she needed to do something with the money that she'd raised. She decided that other children should benefit from the Vegas Nerve Stimulator. And she set up a charity to fund this because the NHS at that point wasn't funding it. She called the charity Fable for a better life with epilepsy. And you can find out more about it by looking for it using your internet search engine. The amount of money that she raised was extraordinary. She was able to speak to almost anybody. She obtained patrons from the arts and television from a, and from a variety of different places and very quickly was raising very large sums of money. Indeed, initially that money was used to fund Vegas Nerve Stimulators. But because of the data that ourselves and our colleagues in London were able to gather, we were able to persuade the NHS that Vegas Nerve Stimulators should be funded for children. And after a few years, it was no longer necessary for the money that Fable raised to be used for that. She decided to use it to improve the lives of people with epilepsy. She changed the lives of so many people that came to see her. She provided education. She had a vision for children with epilepsy being able to participate and being able to take part in all sorts of activities. And she was able to do that by bringing together a group of volunteers, by encouraging people to take part in the charity, and by continuing to fundraise. She won many awards for her charity work. She asked me to continue to be involved with the charity, and even to this day I am part of it. Sadly, Charlie's mum passed away a few years ago, but her work continues, and the charity continues, and what she's built, I think, will live for a very long time indeed. We've gone on and implanted the Vegas Nerve Stimulator in well over 250 children now. What we've found is that Charlie was and is exceptionally lucky. There are one or two children who do get that degree of benefit. Sadly also, there are some children who have a vagus nerve stimulator implanted who really get no benefit at all. But in our hands, well over 50% of children get really meaningful benefit, and a large proportion get at least some benefit. The figures we have have been put together with figures from many other centres in Europe, and the results are very much the same wherever you are. It's not a miracle cure. It's not the answer to everybody's problems. But for children with epilepsy that doesn't respond to medication, that isn't suitable for a more curative surgical intervention, this is a procedure that can offer real benefit and something that we continue to undertake on a regular basis. I hope that you found this episode interesting, as I hope you've realised vagus nerve stimulation, of course, isn't the answer to everyone's epilepsy. And it's not the only way to tackle epilepsy in children who are really struggling. But it is an important procedure, and it is an important intervention. And it's something that I feel very privileged to have been part of pioneering in this country. I hope that you'll come and join me next time for the next episode of Tales of a Children's Doctor. Once again, we'll be looking at some really difficult and challenging problems, and we'll look at how those have impacted both on the child and their family. Please come and join me. This has been Tales of a Children's Doctor. I hope you have enjoyed this episode. For more information about the podcast, please go to the website, childrensdoctortales.co.uk, 
or the Facebook page at Tales of a Children's Doctor. Please join us for the next episode where we'll hear more stories of children and their families. <laughs>